0: This text of scripture is God's indictment of the attitude that people have the ability to deliver themselves from condemnation. This text of scripture speaks of those on the brink of perdition. The enemy was closing in for the kill, and he had his arsenal of fiery darts and the leering faces of all his demons, there was no defense against him. Those on the brink of destruction even collaborated with their enemy in their destruction. When it seemed that all was lost, Jesus came to save his people from their sins at the last instant when the situation seemed bleak and dismal beyond hope jesus came and saved his people you were among that number who were about to vanish into the darkness of god's condemnation forever you were on the verge of disaster. From the very time you came into the world, you were on the verge of disaster. But Jesus came and bade the darkness flee. Our text expounds the hopelessness of depraved souls that required Jesus to take bold action for their rescue those who are without strength can do nothing for their reclamation they are on the bed of weakness they have no strength at all they wait for the judgment to fall then jesus came To bring deliverance. He came to provide what I call tonight salvation for the powerless. Salvation for the powerless. This verse presents the case of those who can do nothing to help themselves. They have no resources to invest. They are without strength. In the verse that we considered last, Lord's Day, verse 5, we read that the love of God has been shed abroad in the hearts of those for whom Christ died. In this verse, we confront the ground upon which that love spreads. We learn the ground on which the Holy Spirit indwells believers in Christ. It is the ground of Calvary. As he did so often in the inspired writings, the Apostle Paul came to the ground of assurance. We considered that theme last Lord's Day. In fact, it has emerged in our studies so far in this series as a dominant theme. You gain no assurance from anything you do. You gain no assurance from any decision that you make. You gain no assurance from any effort at sincerity. You cannot measure the thoroughness of your belief. You cannot tell whether you meant your profession genuinely. The ground of assurance always lies outside ourselves. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's why Dr. Paisley so often exhorted young preachers not to stray too far from the cross, because the cross is the theme of salvation. And you have to look there to find your assurance, not to yourself, not to anything that someone else has told you, but to the cross. If you look to yourself, if you look to others, you find disappointment. But if you look to Christ, you will never find disappointment. Here is the only way of salvation. So while there is time and opportunity, those who want rescue must look away from themselves and look. Unto Christ alone. Because soon, very soon, the day will come when time runs out. And then the opportunity will be gone forever. This text teaches us about time. And I want you to observe with me three aspects or three times, of which the text speaks. First of all, the time of inability. The text speaks of a time when we were without strength. It speaks of a time of weakness that we actually would consider to be impotence. It speaks of not just weakness as we understand it. Well, he's weak, he can't get up. It speaks of total depravity. It speaks of the inability to originate any spiritual good within yourself. It speaks of the blindness that permeates the soul of every descendant of Adam. And if there's one theme that seems to have vanished into the fog of evangelicalism in these days, it is the theme of total depravity. Every descendant of Adam comes into this world totally depraved, laboring under the guilt and corruption of original sin. You were born that way. You were born without strength. So the statement of the text is not about your physical strength. The statement of the text is about spiritual reality. You were born in total depravity, which is the complete ruin of the whole nature. Thinking of Dr. Paisley, I well remember him on many occasions when I heard him say, you would think to hear some people talk that when man fell in the Garden of Eden, he did nothing but hurt his pinky finger. But when man fell, he plunged himself and all his descendants into the estate of sin and misery. So the Bible does not come to you and say you need to somehow figure out how to exercise your faith and stir yourself up to believe because you cannot do it. You cannot save yourself. You cannot originate any spiritual good. Your only recourse is to call on the only one who can save you. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. You are like Peter On the storm-tossed Sea of Galilee. And Jesus standing there not too far away from him. And Peter walked on the water to go to Jesus. But the scriptures tell us when he saw the wind and the waves. He took his eyes off of Jesus and he began to sink. And what was his cry? Lord, save me. And Jesus caught him by the hand and rebuked him. Why did you doubt? Your only recourse is to call on Christ. The scriptures paint a very gloomy picture of people in the time of inability. We read that they are helpless. The Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 16 Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 4. And as for thy nativity, in the day thou wast born, thy navel was not cut, neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pitied thee to do any of these unto thee, to have compassion upon thee. But thou wast cast out in the open field to the loathing of thy person in the day that thou wast born. And when I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. Here's a picture of helplessness. People in this condition, being without strength, are dependent on the intervention of others. An infant, as we find described in Ezekiel 16, cast out into the field cannot do anything. So the text that we have before us tonight when it speaks of being without strength lays the axe of God's truth to the root of the tree of self-reliance. People are very fond of boasting that they can make themselves. But the reality is in your natural state, you cannot help yourself. And worse, you have no desire to help yourself. But people in this condition think that everything is fine. They think that all is well. But helplessness goes hand in hand with hopelessness. Let us turn to the New Testament now to Ephesians and to the second chapter. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Wherefore, remember. Always good to mark the exhortations in God's word to remember because we we tend to forget wherefore remember that ye being in time past gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands that at that time ye were without christ being aliens from the commonwealth of israel And strangers from the covenants of promise, notice having no hope, and without God in the world. Here's the picture of those who are without strength. They're without hope. Before Christ came to save his people, his people had no hope. They could not save themselves, and yet they needed to be saved. But if Christ had not come, they would have perished. The ultimate aspect of the time of inability is godlessness. They have no God except themselves. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, they have no hope. They're without God in the world. Well, they have the God of themselves. I read recently, perhaps you read as well, that a poll of millennials has shown that 43% of them don't have any use for God or anything to do with any kind of religion. They are without God. There's a reason For that scenario and the reason is that there has been a decline in the preaching of the truth concerning God they are without God they are without Christ and nothing leads to more disastrous consequences the godless we find in the scriptures are set on wickedness Ephesians, again, chapter 2. And earlier in the chapter, this time, verse 2. The inspired apostle, writing to the Ephesians, talks about their being quickened, and then he talks about their trespasses and sins in verse 2, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. When you look around in the world today and you see the perversion advancing on every front, what can we conclude but that this is the power of the prince of the power of the air? The godless are set on wickedness. They don't want anything to do with righteousness. If you want a, a, a description of the godless, you have nothing more than to turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Not going to take the time to read this entire passage. But you may certainly read it uh, on your own. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous. That's a universal statement. No, not one, not even one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Here is the true picture of depravity. Here is the true picture of the time of inability. There is no strength to do anything that is good. Anything that is godly. And everything appears... To be lost. But thankfully there is another time in the text. And that's the second aspect of our text. The time of intervention. It is striking that the text speaks of a due time. A due time. We have a tendency to pass by statements of that nature, but we ought not. Some render the expression according to the time. That is, when we were without strength, according to the time, Christ died for the ungodly. What time was that? It was God's time. God is never ahead of time or behind time. Christ came into this world and died at the right time. It was not an accident. It was not the result of random events. It was instead the focal point of God's plan for the ages. It was the time of God's appointment, the due time. Let us look at First Peter chapter 1. one. Peter Chapter One. We're coming to Verse twenty. Speaking of Christ, of whom we read in verse nineteen that he is that Lamb. Without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. He was foreordained. That is, his entrance into the world was set in God's program from before the foundation of the world. And at the right time, Christ came into the world. And it was the time for God's condemnation of humanity's vaunted progress. In Galatians chapter 4, a scripture to which we often refer, especially around the time of the celebration of the Incarnation, But in chapter 4 of Galatians and verse 4, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. When, so here's a reference to time, when the fullness of the time was come. So during all the ages, going all the way back to Adam and to the fall in the Garden of Eden, during all those ages, the time was advancing. But God fixed a day for the entrance of his son into the world. And when that time came, God sent forth his son. And the reference to the fullness of the time in Galatians 4 and verse 4 has to do with the fact that Christ came at what was the zenith of human accomplishments. It was the time of the Pax Romana, the time of the Roman peace, the greatest human peace that has ever existed. It was the time of the most efficient administration of government that has ever existed. It was a time when it appeared that nothing could be greater Then the administration of the Caesar. But at that time, God sent forth his son to say, The very best that people can do is not good enough to deliver themselves. Not even the best they could do would satisfy God. So Christ came into the world, in part to show people, in spite of all their so-called progress, how far short they still fell. Christ's entrance to the world at exactly the right time was for exactly the right purpose. And that brings me to the third time of which we find in the text, the time of irresistibility. Our text speaks of a historical fact. At the due time, at that time, the time of intervention, at that time, Christ died for the ungodly. Repeat that statement in your mind over and over. Christ died for the ungodly, for the depraved, For those who had no interest in him. For those who were at enmity with him. He died. For the ungodly. He went to the cross. And there he suffered. Not only the physical anguish of the crucifixion. But he suffered the punishment. That his father poured out upon him. For being the substitute. For his people. And he did it. To save his people. Christ died for the ungodly. That includes you. That includes me. We were of that number. The hardest thing for people who have come to Christ to admit. Is that before they came to Christ. They were ungodly. Regardless of the kind of home in which. They grew up. They were ungodly. And you have to be ungodly to benefit from the death of Christ. For when Christ died upon the cross, he guaranteed salvation to every one of his people. When we were without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And his death, Death for the ungodly made it certain that you can be saved and that you can know that you are saved beyond any doubt. We are talking, as we did last Lord's Day, about the solid confidence that is the portion of those whose hope is in the Lord. The Lord who gave himself for them. Why did Christ die for the ungodly? Hebrews chapter 9 in verse 26 tells us. Often come to Hebrews. It's, It's such a rich epistle. Hebrews 9 in verse 26. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He died for the ungodly to put away their sin. To answer for all their transgressions. To answer for their guilt of the original sin in the Garden of Eden. He came to die for the ungodly to put away sin. To make that declaration feasible of which we spoke this morning. No condemnation. To them who are in Christ Jesus. Because Christ died for the ungodly to put away sin. He died for the ungodly to justify those who are unjust. And here we go back to Romans chapter 4. To which we referred briefly this morning. Romans chapter 4 and verse 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And why will he not impute sin? Because Christ died for the ungodly. He made an end of all their iniquity upon the cross. He came to put away sin. To justify the unjust. And so, in doing those things, when he died for the ungodly, he delivered those who were under the sentence of death. He delivered those who were under condemnation. They couldn't do anything. They were weak. They were powerless. But Christ came to die for the ungodly, to provide salvation. For those who had no strength. And we may bless the Lord tonight. That that message of Paul in Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. Is the message on which we lean tonight. When we were without strength. When there was nothing to commend us to God. At the right time. In due time. Christ died for the ungodly. The apostle goes on, of course, in the chapter to speak about the fact that this kind of death is unknown in the world. You might find someone who would give up his life for someone who was good. You might. No guarantee. But Christ died for the ungodly. How we rejoice tonight then in this great truth that comes to us again from the word of God. That there is salvation for the powerless. So we don't boast as though we did anything. But we rest upon what Christ has done in his death for the ungodly may God give us the grace to rest upon that truth to know the reality of it in our lives day by day when we were without strength Christ in due time died for the ungodly